With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included. All while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. This message comes from Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey there, welcome back to the latest episode of the Book of Joe podcast with me, Tom Verducci and Joe Madden. Joe, how you doing? The baseball season has almost run its course. We're down to the last couple of weeks. Yeah, this is playoff weather we're experiencing right now. So I used to stand behind the batting cage wherever we were at to get that kind of a more brisk autumn kind of a feel. And I would say, originally I said, this is uh, so I could smell football in here. He said, no, 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 this is playoff weather, baseball playoff weather. And it is favorite time of the year in the game. You work so hard to get to that point where you're in position to get to the playoffs, but there's nothing like it. I, man, did I, I, I love that every moment of that. Um, everything's uh, ramped up, amped up a little bit more and I love it. And that's what it smells like right now. Yeah, well, there's no one better to put this season and baseball in perspective than our special guest. Joe, we've got Bob Costas here from MLB Network. I want to say that because he's my great colleague. And when we do games together on the MLB Showcase games, we are in Boston doing games this week. Uh, Bob, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. And I got to start with this, since we're talking about this season here. We've talked a lot about the pitch clock on this podcast and how it's changed the game. I, I want to get your overall take on where baseball stands in, in what I think is the beginning, maybe, of a new era in the way the rules have changed the game this year and the popularity of the sport. Yeah, I think the rules changes have been an unmitigated success. There may be a few people carping here and there, a few little suggestions that might at least be plausible little tweaks. But by and large, this has been overwhelmingly successful. The players have adjusted to it. The fans have adjusted to it. You know, we did the game yesterday in Boston, two hours and 46 minutes. And that actually seemed, I turned to you at one point in the sixth inning, I said, this seems long by today's standards, but it still came in under three hours. And it isn't just the average time of game. They virtually eliminated the nine-inning game that goes three and a half hours. Uh, there are games that wind up 
10 to 9, and they go three hours and 10 minutes. In fact, we did one earlier this year in St. Louis. I forget the final score, but the Cardinals scored 16. So it was 16 to 9, something like that. And it came in at 303 or 304. No one's going to complain about that when there's that much action and the pace within it is acceptable. It isn't just time of game, as you've said many times, Tom. It's pace of game. And the pace of game feels so much better than it used to. Could I just ask something with that right there? Um, when you talk about the rule changes, Bob, and I, you know, I'm into it. I, I like the, the more expedient game in the dugout. Obviously, you're standing there watching guys interminable in between pitches, uh, batters getting out of the box, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, the, the superstar of all the rule changes is the pitch clock. Uh, that's the one thing that I think really has uh, had the greatest impact on the game. Because I, I kind of bang on some of the other things. I don't like the three batter minimum. I don't like to run on second base. You guys might. But uh, all the different things that have occurred in our game, um, I still, as a manager, uh, like to be able to strategize and create an edge over the other guy. Because if I think more deeply or intelligently or whatever you want to describe it in advance of the other guy, I have an advantage. Mm-hmm. So I still don't like runner on second. I don't like three batter minimum, things like that. The bigger bases to me. It's kind of a push. I don't necessarily like um, minimum uh, max of like two throws over the third one. Bach or runner proceeds to the next bag. I think this this kind of mitigates strategy. That's the part I don't like. I think in the beginning for me, I was kind of my my uh, opinion was to change the or put the pitch clock in effect first. Just put it out there first, and then if in fact after that we need other kind of changes, go for it. But I thought that was the superstar that would eventually. Uh, create the thoughts that you're you just uh, articulated upon yes quicker more paced game more interesting game more action-packed but I don't like where strategy has been curtailed for the manager I that's that's where I come from with that well Joe the two you mentioned just now were actually put in place in response to the plotting pace of the game Mm -hmm. especially the three batter minimum that's a relic of the pre-pitch clock Mm -hmm. they could get rid of that and then you could still have the in-game strategy. Right. It doesn't matter anymore if there's a mid-inning pitching change because the game's moving at a decent pace. And the ghost runner came in during COVID partly because they were trying to get people off the field and not mingling with each other before there were vaccines and everything else. And now that you, A, have that largely removed, I mean, COVID is completely gone, but there's an entirely different response to it now and the ballparks are filled and people are conducting themselves differently so you don't have the covid reason uh to get a game over quickly in extra innings and if the game's moving at a decent pace at the very least you could play the 10th and maybe the 11th before you put a ghost runner in Mm -hmm. the other objection uh to playing a long game is as you know your fellow managers don't want to blow out their pitching staff so they don't want an 18 inning game but I don't want to see real baseball abandoned as soon as you go to the 10th inning. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. With this extra inning stuff, I thought um, if you want to do something like that, play the 10th inning normally. Put a runner on first in the 11th and then put eventually the runner on second in the 12th, if, if that is that important. But like you just kind of suggested there, um, the pitch clock in and of itself really kind of um, – again, mitigates all the concerns with these other rule changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I believe that from the beginning, you may, you probably will see a little bit of an uptick if in fact you eliminate the three batter minimum. But I'm here to tell you, man, as a manager in the dugout and the the latter part of the game, you got to throw a guy out there and have to think of in blocks of three. 
And it can be difficult because there's something there you really don't like, but you got to eat it anyway. You got to eat it. You got to let him pitch to this guy. You don't like it. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, Bob's your uncle. Everything changes at that particular point. So uh, that's the kind of stuff that I don't think uh, has been talked about enough. It's yeah, it's it's been great. It's more athletic. Uh, different teams have demonstrated that the teams that have built been built athletically to demonstrate and, and actually take advantage of these rule changes. But overall, I, I would love to see that, um, you know, if the manager still is pertinent, if the manager is no longer pertinent, then that this this is a moot point. But if the manager is pertinent, you got to permit him tools to strategize during the course of the game and not completely take it out of his hands based on uh, even runner on second base, man, you lose games in extra innings. What was um, uh, Padres 0-11 this year? Something stupid like that earlier? Mm-hmm. Runner on second base now. I mean, uh, a lot of that could just be purely some happenstance luck. I don't even know if he could strategize for that. It's just a matter of your hitter, hitter gets a hit or not. So these are the kind of things that I, as the game's gotten uh, into a better pace, I'd like to see this revisited possibly and, uh, and maybe uh, relax some of these or take these away and just – play a greater pace game, which was the game we grew up with. Yeah, just to give our listeners some numbers here about the changes in the game this year, the average time of game that Bob referenced has gone from 3.03 to 2.39. That's shaving 24 minutes off the game. Uh, The time between balls in play, that's the big one, right? That's gone from 3 minutes 42 seconds to 3.12. That's a big change. Uh, as far as the shift goes, batting average on ground balls by left-handed hitters. Uh, yeah, that's specific, but those are the ones harmed the most by the shift. Went from 226 to 240. That's a lot more singles in the game that came back. And stolen base attempts went from .68 per game to .90 with the highest percentage of success rate, 80%, up from 75%. So it's had a meaningful effect on how the game is played. Bob, my question for you is, does this translate now into a more attractive game where, I don't want to say baseball needs to come back, but gain maybe some new people following the game, and specifically younger people. I mean, mm-hmm. we just saw a Monday night football game that drew 22 million viewers. I mean, the World Series would kill for that kind of a number, right? Right. Uh, and I'm not saying yeah. baseball can get those kind of numbers, but is this the start maybe of baseball getting back some of the fans that it had lost with that slower pace? Yeah, the early returns are good. I don't know if they have definitive data yet, uh, but the anecdotal stuff is good and attendance is up. But of course, some of that is coming out of the COVID circumstance. And that's always affected by how teams in certain markets are doing. So you need more seasons really to evaluate it. Let's say if you're a Cardinal fan, And somebody says, do you like the new rules? Yeah. Are you as interested in baseball this year? No, because the Cardinals are lousy this year. Uh, So that how your how your own team is doing. Yankee fans, when uh, as Jim Codd, our old buddy, used to put it, every game against the Red Sox was four hours of drama and trauma. Yankee fans would would trade a fast paced game in 2023 for Joe Torre's teams in the 90s and in the early 2000s, even if the game took five hours. So there's a lot of kind of overlapping factors here. But I think generally speaking, the reaction to this has been good. And here's something that will matter. Postseason games used to be even longer than pre-pitch clock regular season games. And some of that meant that the most important games were going past midnight on the East Coast. 
And that might be the third of three games that were on television that day in the early rounds of the playoffs. And the, the casual fan can't commit to that much. So if the games are moving at a brisker pace, especially in October, uh, maybe the ratings will reflect that. Well, another thing with that, I mean, a part of that is trips to the mound. Yeah. And, you know, that's not given enough credit there to how they have uh, curtailed the trips to the mound. I mean, that little pitch comm device, stealing of signs. That's where that's where the trips to the mound came in when you thought somebody might be on to you and all of a sudden Posada's going out there every other pitch. So that's, that's another, um, not necessarily a rule change, but an addition, technologically speaking, that I think is a good one. Um, the fact that that is occurring, because I'll tell you one thing, from a, this is kind of around this, but uh, from a managerial perspective, for me, one of the, the, the things I hated most was missed signs, missed signs. And um, normally that wouldn't occur. There'd be a, a confusion or change up once in a while regarding uh, pitcher and catchers. But when you could get signs transmitted more quickly and, and not be concerned about people watching it and feel comfortable that, you know, what you're going to do that nobody knows in advance, that's, that's a good feeling. So I think that hasn't gotten enough credit, the, the little device uh, that, that uh, accelerates the communication between the pitcher and the catcher. To me, that is as, that's as big as anything else that's been done. Well said. Hey, listen, we love to talk about the struggle on this podcast, right? Not so much the success, but sometimes you remember at least that the struggle can be even more enjoyable than the success. When we get back after this quick break, I want to ask Bob Costas about the struggle because I'm sure there must have been a time as successful as Bob has been when there was a struggle. We'll dive into that right after this. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Book of Joe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Book of Joe. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker 
retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. All right, Joe, there's probably been no broadcaster as successful as Bob Costas. He's the only person who has won Emmys both in, well, all in sports, news, and entertainment. He's been everywhere, done everything. His voice is synonymous with big events. And I got to believe, as you talked about, Joe, and your journey through the minor leagues and some of the disappointments that you look back on, at least as uh, with some fond memories mm-hmm. and, the, and the learning that came uh, about then, that there's got to be those points for bob costas so bob i don't know whether this goes mm-hmm. back to the spirit of st louis or yeah <laughs> when you began did you have any idea that there was a question of whether you were forget about being as successful as you are but be able to make this as a career yeah at the very beginning uh i've told this story before but not often being at syracuse and in their already acclaimed communications and journalism school i wanted to be a broadcaster, specifically a sports broadcaster. And it's 1972. I'm 20 years old. I'm in my junior year. And I'm listening to the World Series on the radio. The Reds are in it. And Al Michaels is their young announcer. And I'm hearing Al Michaels. And I'm saying, who is this guy? And it wasn't as easy to check on things then as now. You didn't have all the information on your phone. And eventually I find out he's 26 years old. And I say to myself, I'm doomed. How can I, in six years, be half as good as this guy is? He's unbelievably good. So until you do something and get some kind of positive reinforcement, then you always have doubt. Uh, When I was a senior at Syracuse, I got a job for 30 bucks a game doing minor league hockey in the old Eastern Hockey League, the Slapshot League, the league that the Paul Newman movie was based on. And there was some good feedback from that. And then almost immediately, I landed in St. Louis doing the Spirits. And there was good feedback from that. 
and I'm at KMOX with Jack Buck and Dan Kelly, the legendary hockey announcer, and all the history there. And I was pretty well accepted. So I had a pretty easy ride uh, early on, to be honest. It wasn't much of a struggle. And I look back on it. I was having the time of my life. I was learning and getting better. But at least I was good enough to to be where I was at that time. Uh, I don't know if you call it a struggle, but it was a little bit of an obstacle. Uh, When I started doing TV, I looked so young. I was 24 when I did my first game for CBS. I was 27 when NBC hired me full-time. And I remember and occasionally some of these games pop up on YouTube and you don't even know it's you. You know, it's Eagles against Colts, 1983. And you you pop on it just to see for five seconds. Wait a minute, that's me with Bob Trumpy. And I can hear that I'm consciously trying to sound more authoritative to counterbalance the fact that I look like such a kid. And Don Olmeyer ran NBC Sports when I got there. He's one of the most charismatic figures uh, at that time in sports television, protege of Rune Arledge. And he called me into his office and he said, you know, we, we think you have a future here. We like your work. How old are you again? And I said, I'm 27. He said, damn it. You look like you're 14. How much <laughs> older do you think you would look if you grew a beard? That was his actual idea. And I said, five years, easy. And he said, five years, really? I said, yeah, because that's how long it would take to grow it. <laughs> so, so that went out the window. And later, later, I was playing golf with him. We were in Hawaii to do the, uh, the hula bowl. And I'm playing golf with him, and I'm telling him stories, and I'm cracking jokes. And he said something very insightful. He said, if you never change you'll have a career. But if you let your personality come out, like you're doing with me here on the golf course, then you'll have a much better career. And right after that, I made my first appearance on the David Letterman show. They were looking for Marv Albert to do one of David's stunt things. It was elevator races. And he had people from the audience take fake Olympic torches, run down the hall, get on the elevator, go down to the street at 30 Rock, go around the building, come back, ascend the elevator, get in the studio before the show ended, and whoever had won would get like a laurel wreath and a, and a fake gold medal. And I knew exactly what he wanted. He wanted like a mock serious Olympian broadcast of this. And so I did it and it got laughs. And Letterman says to me, you know, he didn't even know who I was. He introduced me as Bob Costa, <laughs> left the S off. Uh, but he, he liked it. And that was such reinforcement. What Olmeyer had said was correct. And, you know, I got a good response with Letterman. Uh, and after that, I hooked up with Tony Kubek uh, on the game of the week. And Tony and I were a good team. So, you know, you get that kind of reinforcement that if I don't know if the word is struggle, but it was getting past that hurdle of not trying to sound just like an authoritarian generic announcer, but being yourself. Clearing that hurdle was the big thing for me. That's exactly, you know, I get a lot of times, even this morning, I got a, a text from me a young coach wanting advice on, on different things. And almost a hundred percent of the time, not almost a hundred percent of the time, the first piece of advice I try to give is please be yourself. I think everybody tries to be a contrived version of themselves. When your career gets accelerated, you're doing something different or new as a major league manager. I mean, even as a coach coming up, I saw different guys end up in that seat and all of a sudden, man, who is that guy? It's not the same guy I had known as a coach as an example and that authentic self doesn't uh, come uh, forward. I think what you're talking about, cannot agree with you more, is that that authenticity that came out just by being Bob Costas. And that's what I try to tell these guys that are, again, uh, whether it was David Ross or, or Rocco Baldelli and, and now Brandon Hyde is doing a great job 
and of course, Davey Martinez, like more than anything, man, just, just go out there, be yourself, bring you to bear. Uh, Cause you don't have to practice that. You don't have to think about that. It's going to come through all the time. And yeah, that's, that's always the first piece of advice I give to young coaches that are attempting to uh, accelerate their career, move up in, on the ladder, whatever is please just be yourself and realize authenticity plays. Bob, I'm guessing that's probably similar advice you give to young broadcasters because I'm sure they reach out to you um, all the time. Yeah. And it brings me back to something Vince Scully said, and I think it was Red Barber who told him, you know, be yourself. Don't water your own wine. In mm-hmm. other words, don't try to copy someone else. Right. You can certainly learn from professionals who are established, um, but to change or amend your style to be more like someone else and less like yourself is a mistake. So give us some kind of the ideas of what you give young announcers, college kids, uh, when they come to you for advice. This is really old school, but one of the things I tell them is learn as much about the world as you can. And I'm not expecting everybody to, to read the 100 greatest books ever written. I regret to say that I haven't read half of them. But we grew up reading newspapers and magazines and listening to literate broadcasters like Vin Scully, like Jack Whitaker. I think of a guy like Jack Buck. His style was not flowery or poetic, but he had lived an interesting life. He was wounded during World War II at the bridge at Remagen. He grew up, he worked for a while uh, on ships in a shipyard in Ohio. He was one of like eight kids, kind of a hard scrabble youth. Um, he had a little bit of a rat pack sensibility. He was a sentimental man, but he also had a little bit of that Frank Sinatra kind of, kind of uh, let's have a good time, wink, wink sort of thing going on. And so there was a texture to Jack Buck in his broadcasts. A lot of guys master kind of the generic aspect of it, but they don't have enough of a view of the game, of the world rather, beyond the game. Uh, again, I'm not saying you have to be Alistair Cook on PBS, but some sort of frame of reference, some sort of ability to turn a phrase, or if someone mentioned something. Yesterday on our broadcast, uh, J.P. Morosi, who speaks five or six different languages fluently, made a mention when John Schneider came into the game. The word Schneider is a reference, is a writer, means writer in German. And he related that to you. And then it clicked in my head some story about Al Michaels, who used a German phrase uh, to humorous effect when he was doing the San Francisco Giants. Just having a slightly broader view of the world, which comes with time, yes, but I think also young people now are on their devices all the time, and they're not they're just not grasping as much of what's out there in the world as we grew up, not consciously doing it, but it was just the world that we grew up in that kind of gave us a little bit more of a frame of reference than just the game, if that makes any sense. Bob, it's so funny that, yes, it does. You know, it's so funny you said that, and maybe not ironic, that I actually give the same advice when I hear um, from aspiring writers and broadcasters. I, I tell them, read as much as you can, not just about the sport or sports that you're so interested in. Mm-hmm. Make yourself a better citizen of the world, period. And it actually will make you a better writer and a broadcaster. And yep. Joe, it kind of reminds me of what we talk about a lot here when it comes to diversity yep. in the game and diversity of knowledge, that liberal arts education, if you will. You don't have to go to Lafayette to get it. Uh, but having that, that wider perspective, I think, serves all in an age where, let's face it, people love to specialize. 
And sometimes, you know, as good as that is and, and as rewarding as it can be, I think having that broader perspective, no matter what you do, is valuable. We talked about the liberal arts version of baseball, right? I mean, today, I think it's everybody wants to specialize so much on one side. I mean, analytics to me uh, presents one side, of course. Um, if you want to use the term old school, I like to be in school. Uh, but when you get so uh, polarized one side or the other and you lose that balance between the two, um, you're, you're just going to be less than. You need to, we need to utilize all um, methods of educating ourselves. And for me, as a liberal arts guy from Lafayette College, that's what I used to tell my guys. I don't even know if they understood me, but I want a liberal arts method of playing baseball. I want it all. I want power. I want the ability to move a runner. I want, I want to accept your walk. I don't want you not to chase pitches. As a pitcher, I want you to know how to shape your pitches, how to you know elevate in when it's necessary. Mm-hmm. On bases, I want you to take a great secondary lead. I want you to advance on balls in the dirt. I want, I want you to do it all, quite frankly. And in today's game, and I know this for a fact, um, when I went to the Angels, I was told bunting and base running were not taught in the minor leagues for the couple, three years prior to getting there. And more time is spent on, you know, launch angle, exit velocity, spinning the ball to the top of the strike zone, things of that nature where uh, the real game was not being taught. And I've, Tommy and I have talked about this often uh, on these podcasts and in the book of Joe, where uh, when you watch a game, you'll see a void in these certain areas because guys just not have have not been schooled on it. It's not been part of the liberal arts process of getting there. Um, so for me, I, I really, uh, as a manager, a field instructor, field coordinator for so many years, I believe that. I believe you need to teach every aspect of the game. Of course, some guys are better at some part than others. We get that, and there's the complementary component of a team. But uh, I want I want everybody to be exposed be exposed to this, understand this. And then again, you can understand the other guy's role even a little bit better because of that. But I am all about liberal arts and liberal arts in our game. And that's my concern that it's getting too specialized to the point that the entire game is not being taught. And you get a sameness out of that. Yeah, that's right. You know, we talked about the pace of play and everything else. But when the game doesn't have a fuller texture to it, correct? home runs are great. Certain aspects of the game are great. But the game at its best has a texture to it where there's a place for a singles hitter who can lay down a bun and plays good defense and can run. Uh, and, and maybe, and maybe the OPS isn't the be all and end all. If you have other, other elements to your lineup that take care of that, but this guy plays a certain role. And as you know, better than anybody, Joe, or at least as well as anybody, you get into big September games, you get into the postseason against good pitching. If you can't play small ball, even if you don't want to play small ball for 162, if you can't play small ball, if you can't do the little things that you just alluded to, that's not winning baseball. But it's also, even to the casual fan, if there's a sameness to it, it gets monotonous. You think about the NBA. I came out of the ABA, which is where the the three-pointer started. I love the three-pointer. But it used to be a punctuation and an exclamation. When you watch a game now, and the teams combine, no joke, for 73-point attempts in a game, I know the analytics say what's obvious. Make 40% of threes, that's better than making 50% of twos. People get that. But the game has a certain sameness to it. It misses all the elements that make it appealing. Then a guy like Jokic comes along, and he's like a bigger Larry Bird, and fans embrace that because 
he brings other elements into the game, and they're enjoyable elements. Hey, Bob, you and I both remember uh, Vin Scully talking about when he was a kid sitting underneath or actually laying on the floor, a console radio, yeah. and listening to some of the great voices like Grant McNamee and hearing the roar of the crowd. And, and that's where his dream began. Where did your dream begin? I was lucky enough to grow up in New York on Long Island, actually, in a golden age of sports broadcasters. Red Barber had left the Brooklyn Dodgers, so he and Mel Allen were the Yankee voices. And Marty Glickman was calling the Knicks on the radio uh, and the Giants as well in, in football. And Marty was the first, actually the first significant jock turned broadcaster and not as an analyst or color man, but as a top level play-by-play man. He'd been on the 1936 Olympic team as a sprinter with Jesse Owens and he played basketball and football at Syracuse. Uh, he was the guy who, he was Marv Albert's tutor, in effect. Marv was his apprentice, kept stats, and occasionally filled in when Marty had another assignment. So I'm listening to the young Marv Albert. I'm listening to Marty Glickman. And to me, those voices, Lindsey Nelson was the primary voice of the Mets when they came into existence in 62. And for a very short time in the early 60s, we actually lived in Los Angeles. And I was a transistor radio kid uh, listening to Vin Scully. And to me, that's... Games had a melody to them. It wasn't just reporting, however accurately. They had a melody to them. Scully personified that. Nobody was like Scully in that respect. But in his own way, Red Barber uh, and Vin learned so much from Red and Mel Allen, those old school broadcasters, there was a lilt to their voice. Uh, they, they gave the game a soundtrack. And I didn't know if I could become one of them, but to me, their voices were inseparable from the games. So I'd be playing wiffle ball or throwing a tennis ball off a wall or shooting baskets even by myself in a schoolyard, and I would hear their voices. And I thought, well, maybe if I'm really lucky, I can become one of them. And, and what did your parents think? I mean, if, did you mention <laughs> that to them that, hey, this is what I want to do? Because, you know, a lot yeah. of times a parent will look at the odds of their child accomplishing something yep. and say, well, maybe you ought to come up with a plan B. My father thought that it was kind of a far-fetched dream. Um, and he, he encouraged me. He died when he was only 42. I was 18. But I'd been accepted at Syracuse about a month before he had a heart attack and died. And his advice was, yeah, pursue that if you want, Robert. And when he was being serious, he called me Robert instead of Bobby. <laughs> pursue that if you want. But why don't you major in something like, and I don't know why he thought this would be a good thing, something like criminal justice. Somehow I don't see myself as a G-man <laughs> putting the pinch on some gangster. But he, he thought that was more practical. And I could practice broadcasting on the side. <laughs> you could have been the next Elliot Ness instead of the next Vince Scully. <laughs> right. <laughs> but so, somehow I don't, I don't think I fit the Robert Stack mold. <laughs> uh, so we're going to take a quick break. But, you know, we were doing the game at Fenway Park uh, for MLB Network. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is such a treat being in Fenway Park. And then I look to my left and I see Bob Costas, who's been literally around the world in some of the best places to call or watch a, a sporting event. So let's go around the world with Bob when we get back right after this. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. 
Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This message comes from Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast with our guest, Bob Costas. And Bob, you know, I mentioned this, you've literally been around the world. I mean, you've done, of course, the Olympics, um, boxing, the NFL, horse racing, the NBA, NFL, golf, NASCAR, which I, I don't remember, but I'm told that you did. No, and, neither, and neither do I. Sometimes <laughs> Wikipedia just lists everything like a checklist. I interviewed Dale Earnhardt once. That's it. That's, that's the extent of my connection to and knowledge of NASCAR. All right. So I mentioned Fenway Park. Man, you know, it's just it might not be the most comfortable venue to call an event, but just the atmosphere there is just dripping with history and nostalgia and it's so cool so give me if you can some of your top favorite places where you almost pinch yourself and as many times as you might have been there that you know this is a treat to be in this place doing what i'm doing well even though i'm not much of a tennis guy i was at wimbledon in the early 1990s and the history of that can't be lost on you uh the Coliseum in Los Angeles, which was a terrible place for baseball, part of the reason why people began bringing transistor radios, because their seats were so far removed and pointed away from the diamond, they needed a transistor. Then they discovered, wait a second, this kid, Vin Scully, is fantastic. So they kept the transistors even when they moved to Dodger Stadium. Uh, Notre Dame, with a touchdown Jesus behind one of the end zones kind of looming over everything. That's a tremendous setting. Uh, 
Basketball at Duke is a tremendous setting. The old Boston Garden, I know visitors hated it with the, the dents in the floor and no hot water in the shower because Red Auerbach was trying to torment them in the visitor's locker room. But the old Boston Garden had that feel. Wrigley and Fenway, as you say, still do. Um, and then when we did the Olympics in Athens in 2004, uh, you go to the Parthenon, all that history. Uh, and then we did a few events. I was the host, so I wasn't at these events, but they did a few events, the shot put uh, and one or two others at Olympia, the original Olympic Stadium, BC. Uh, that was awe-inspiring. I didn't go to events there, but I, I visited it before the Olympics started. Uh, the Colosseum in Rome, which still stands, and you, you know, people talk about, hey, I'm standing in the old Yankee Stadium, and I say, Babe Ruth hit a home run here. Well, you stand in the Colosseum in Rome. You know, <laughs> Christians were devoured by lions there. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some history there. Joe, I can't believe he didn't say the Lehigh Lafayette, the big game. <laughs> well, I was going to go to Keele Auditorium because I was a St. Louis Hawks fan. I was a Hawks fan. I mean, before the Spirits, but the Hawks played there also, right? Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. Bob the, Pettit. Yeah, Bob Pettit, uh, Richie Guerin, Lenny Wilkins, Joe Caldwell, Bill Bridges. Wow. Uh, Don O. Uh, yep. Walt Hazard. I could keep going on and on. That was my group back then. That was my. Those were my boys. Keel Auditorium still stands. Mm -hmm. There are concerts there and occasional sports events. When I got to St. Louis, the Hawks had already left. Uh, for Atlanta. Okay. Uh, the Spirits of St. Louis of the ABA, that was my team, lasted for two years and didn't get into the merger. But St. Louis University played games, some of which I attended at Keele Auditorium. Uh, I saw the Rolling Stones play wow. at Keele Auditorium. Uh, it, you know, it's an old, ornate uh, structure, and it still stands in downtown St. Louis. I used to get the annual uh, from the Sporting News. Uh, they would have like the those little, those little books like on baseball and, and the NBA. I can't remember what, exactly what they were called, but it would just give you a rundown of each ballpark or each auditorium, uh, like the Cow Palace in San Francisco. I was always intrigued uh -huh. by the Cow Palace, Nate Thurman and all those dudes. I mean, all, I mean, I was a real NBA fan back in the 60s and 70s. I'm not as into it as now as I had been back then. I could talk more about like Dave Bing and Bob Lanier as I can with anybody playing today. But that was there was a special time for me NBA wise, and I know you're we're, we're really connected to all that stuff. But all the um, cathedral kind of auditoriums with basketball. You mentioned the Boston Garden, Madison Square Garden, Keel, Cal Palace. Yeah. Uh, did you visit most of those those auditoriums, or just a couple? Everyone you mentioned, except for the Cal Palace, okay. was never there. Mm -hmm. Come to think of it, <clears throat> when I was uh, at Syracuse, Archbold Stadium, which opened in 1909 was then the oldest stadium in use in all of college football. Mm. But it also proved the adage that just because something's old doesn't mean it's charming. <laughs> no, no one lamented the passage of, awesome. of Archbold Stadium the way they would if, God forbid, Fenway or Wrigley was ever torn down. That's awesome, man. Bob, you mentioned the the old ABA and kind of cutting your teeth there with uh, the spirit of St. Louis. Uh, you got to tell the Marvin Barvin story about travel back then between time zones. Yeah. It's, and I'm assuming, because it's so good, I want to believe the story is true. Oh, it's true. And I think you might have been there. Uh, not only there, I'm, I'm, I'm the keeper of the flame on this story because I was directly involved. 
teams didn't travel by charter then. Louisville is maybe a four-hour drive, four and a half from St. Louis, but it's in the Eastern time zone. So the Spirits play artist Gilmore, Dan Issel, and the Kentucky Colonels. QB Brown is the coach. And the next morning, we gather at the airport for an early flight back to St. Louis. And the traveling secretary, who was also the trainer, you had one assistant coach, you didn't have a huge staff back then in the ABA. The trainer hands out the itinerary and it says TWA flight 305, depart Louisville 8 a.m., arrive St. Louis 756. And Marvin Barnes, who was the star of the team, All-American at Providence, selected second after Bill Walton in both the ABA and NBA drafts. And had he fulfilled his potential, no question he'd be in the Hall of Fame. He was very likable and very funny, but very self-destructive and passed away at the age of 62 or 63, unfortunately. And he and I remained good friends right to the end. We were in touch with each other. But in any case, I digress, as I'm sometimes wont to do. Anyway, so traveling secretary slash trainer hands out the itinerary. TWA, flight 305, depart Louisville, 8 a.m., arrive St. Louis, 756. And Marvin Barnes walks up to me, holding the piece of paper, drapes an arm over my shoulder, and from more than a foot above me, looks down and says, bro, do you see this? And I said, yes. He says, well, I don't know about you, but as for me, I am not getting on any time machine. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the thing. People, when they first hear this, think that Marvin was dumb. He wasn't dumb. He was smart. And he knew that that was funny, but he also knew that maybe some of his teammates wouldn't get it, but I would. So that's why he, he sprang the joke on me. Uh, the struggle, that's, right, Joe? That's right. <laughs> those, yeah. The characters, man, the guys with the senses of humor, man, those, those are the ones that really make it all worthwhile. Yeah. That's good stuff. Hey, Bob, here's, when I'm doing a game with you, I wonder about this sometimes. Do you still get a moment before these events, wherever it is, um, where maybe nervousness is not the right word, but you know, still a certain anxiety, excitement. You can use whatever word you want. I mean, you've done so many events and so many big events. It would be easy to think, well, he's used to it. Yeah. But is there still a little bit something, and you can describe it as you wish, obviously, um, that you feel before you go on air? Yeah. Nervousness came into play at the beginning, especially my first few broadcasts on KMOX. And then my first few television broadcasts, especially at NBC when they hired me full time. Then after that, once, you know, you hear athletes say this. Yeah, I was nervous in the World Series. But once the first ball was hit to me, then I was just playing baseball. Or once the first hit in a football game, then we're just playing the game that we that we grew up with and know how to play. So after a while, uh, it wasn't a matter of nervousness. But you do get more keyed up when they're counting down for the opening ceremony of an Olympics or when it's a world series or an NBA final, uh, you're, you're more alert. You feel a certain excitement. And at least in my case, always appreciation. Wow. I'm here. You know, the first world series, I hosted a lot of them when Vin and Joe were doing the games at NBC. Uh, but when the nineties rolled around, the first world series I did play by play of was in 95. And I'm standing there with, Uh, Joe Morgan and Bob Euchre, and it was game three in Cleveland, uh, the Braves and the then Indians. And my son, Keith, who you work with at uh, the Major League Baseball now, uh, Major League Baseball Network, 
now in his 30s, he was nine years old. My dad never saw or heard one thing I ever did. Nine-year-old Keith Costas, on a Friday night, his mom put him on a plane from St. Louis to uh, Cleveland right after school. It was easier to have somebody meet you at the gate then. It was pre-9-11, so we had someone from NBC meet him at the gate. He'd already traveled a lot as a kid, so it wasn't that daunting to be on a plane. And they got him to the booth just as we were about to do the opening stand-up, just before the national anthem. And he already knew a lot about baseball. He's wide-eyed. He's there in the booth. You can't help but feel tremendous appreciation. I'm doing the World Series. My dad never got to see me do anything. Here's my nine-year-old kid. He's experienced so much of it with me. So you do feel that appreciation. Um, and and a, a little bit more keyed up for a World Series or an NBA final or a Super Bowl than you would for a regular season game. Could I just ask one question with all that? Now, you've done so many different things, and I think I might know the answer to this, but you've got to have a favorite sport or, or event to broadcast. Do you have... Uh, do you have one favorite sport to do? Well, baseball's always been my favorite sport. Mm-hmm. And basketball was second. Okay. Maybe the most iconic, and that word is thrown around a lot, but maybe the most iconic event that I specifically called rather than hosted was Michael Jordan's last game with the Bulls in 98 when he made the shot that turned the one-point deficit into the one-point victory, mm-hmm. sealed his sixth NBA championship, and it wasn't just that it was a winning play. It was so classic. You know, if you, if you were making a movie, that's the way the shot would look. And he even held the pose at the end of the release of the shot, almost like he was posing for a statue. Uh, and when the last dance came around more than 20 years after, uh, I didn't remember specifically some of the stuff during that season that led up to it. But most of it was on NBC. And the fact that the way we covered it held up well more than two decades later is a a small source of pride. Uh, I was in the Dodger dugout. Uh, Vin Scully was calling the game magnificently, but I was in the Dodger dugout when Kirk Gibson hit the home run off Dennis Eckersley. I was waiting to jump out on the field and do a post-game interview. And to this day, uh, it's the most theatrical thing imaginable. You know, I likened it to Robert Redford's at-bat as Roy Hobbs in The Natural. And in fact, when I mentioned that to one of our producers after the game, I said, you know, that he was like Roy Hobbs. He actually went back. He, David Neal, a great producer, went to NBC in Burbank. And overnight, he intercut Redford's last at-bat as Roy Hobbs from The Natural with Barry Levinson's direction. And um, why am I forgetting the name of, uh, oh, Randy Newman. Randy Newman did the, the score. And he intercut Gibson's at-bat with Redford's at-bat. And it was almost eerie the way the two of them matched. Uh, If you were making a movie, you wouldn't change a single frame. And the difference was that as great a director as Barry Levinson is, he had multiple takes if he needed them. Harry Coyle, the legendary director for NBC, and Mike Weissman and John Filippelli, the producers in the truck, they had one shot at it. And they completely nailed every aspect of it. And Kirk Gibson himself says... He's at the center of it. Part of the way he remembers it is the way it was televised. And you have on the same play, two of the greatest calls in baseball history, Vin Scully on television and Jack Buck. I don't believe what I just saw on the radio. So I was kind of a tangential part of that. 
But even in the moment, you could tell it wasn't just mm-hmm. a game-winning home run. There was something about it that was so dramatic and so theatrical that it would always resonate, and it still does more than 30 years later. Oh, Bob, you're underestimating your role in that World Series and that event. <laughs> because, you, first of all, you were right there listening to Kirk Gibson yes. warm up when none of us mm-hmm. thought he was even available to play. Yeah. And then Tommy Lasorda, the late Tommy Lasorda, credits you with inspiring his team, correct? <laughs> well, Tommy Tommy can be delightfully full of it. You know, he was delightfully <laughs> full of it when he wanted to be. So the first part is this. They send me down. Uh, I'm going to interview somebody after the game. And I've got the Dodgers and Marv Albert has the A's. So I think I'm going to be doing a losing interview because Eckersley's almost untouchable, even though it's a one-run game. And I'm in the tunnel between the clubhouse and the dugout. And all of a sudden I hear thwack, uh, thwack, uh. And I walk down to investigate and there's the batting cage and here's Gibson and Bat Boy's putting balls on a tee for him and he's taking swings. And with every swing, he's grunting in pain and discomfort. So I get on the telex and I tell Mike Weissman, Gibson put his uniform on, he's taking swings, maybe he can pinch hit. And he alerted Vin and Joe in the booth. And Vin had already asked Harry Coyle to now and then pan the dugout looking for Gibson, no Gibson. So that's the idea of drama, building drama, not fake hype, which is everywhere. Fake hype is everywhere in sports TV today. That was legitimate storytelling and legitimate drama. And it wasn't just what happened when Gibson connected. It was everything that led up to it and surrounded it. So masterfully done in the truck, by the producers and directors, and in the booth by then. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I played that part in it. And then we get to game four, and that was Gibson's only at-bat in the whole World Series. And then Mike Marshall, their secondary power source, went out. So the Dodgers send out a lineup for game four that looks like a B game in World Series, in, in a spring training, rather. Guys who were good players past their prime, like Rick Dempsey and Alfredo Griffin, and guys who had been reserves their entire careers, Dave Anderson, Franklin Stubbs, John Shelby, Mickey Hatcher, who hit one home run during that season and two in the World Series. They called themselves the Bomb Squad. So I survey this lineup, and I'm hosting the pregame show. The series stands two to one, and Hershiser's going to pitch game five. And we know if it goes seven, he's going to throw at least some innings on two days rest in game seven. So I know the Dodgers have a chance here, and they're up two games to one because Hershiser had followed up Gibson's miracle with a great performance in game two. So they went to Oakland up two games to none. So I say, pitching aside, and this is the key thing, pitching aside and Dodger pitching is excellent. This may be the weakest lineup ever to take the field for a World Series game. That was a considered statement. So the pregame is on in the Dodgers clubhouse in Oakland. Lasorda sees it and says, see that? Even Costas doesn't give us a chance. (laughs) And apparently by his own testimony, he then leads a chant of kill Costas, kill Costas. (laughs) So now the pregame ends and they're about to do the anthem. And I don't want to be disrespectful. So I fall at the end of the line. The Dodgers are there and Hershiser's at the end of the line with his cap over his heart. And he looks down at me and kind of into the corner of his mouth, he goes, boy, You really got the boys riled up. And I don't even know what he's talking about. And then he explains to me when the anthem is over. And then Lasorda puts on a virtuoso performance. 
it's like he pulled every rabbit out of the hat. He gave Mike Davis the hit sign on three and zero, and Davis homered. I think he hit three homers the whole year. He pulled a squeeze, hit everything he did. He won game four. Lasorda won game four. And then Hershiser predictably won game five. But before game five, I had to go to Tony LaRusso's office because he had gotten it third and fourth hand. And Tony and I were always friendly. He thought that Lasorda and I had orchestrated it, <laughs> that it was a setup. And I had to go assure Tony, no, 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 you know Tommy. It's just Tommy. And of course, Tony wasn't in the best possible mood because he's down three to one at that point. So, so I was inadvertently in the middle of it. And some years later, you know, I actually was in St. Louis at a St. Louis Browns fan club luncheon. Wow. There, there are three surviving St. Louis Browns, <laughs> but there are dozens and dozens of people who remember them as, I guess they were fans when they were kids. So, so they have this annual luncheon. And Rick Dempsey the connection to the Browns being that he played for the Baltimore Orioles and the Browns left St. Louis and became the Orioles. Rick Dempsey was the keynote speaker. So I'm sitting there having lunch with Rick and he still thought that I said that the Dodgers of 88 were the worst team in world series history. <laughs> he wasn't angry. He was, he was smiling. I said, no, Rick, that's not what I said. But Tom, you know, in this business, <laughs> things yeah. get distorted pretty easily. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story ever. Correct. That's right. That's right. I love that story. And then, by the way, Tony LaRusa, I don't know whether it was before or after, allowed you to manage a spring training game? Oh, yeah. That was on my 40th birthday. Uh, and as a surprise birthday present, uh, I managed the A's against the Mariners in 1992, in spring training of 92. And also as part of it, I had to hit fungos, took some batting practice. Nice. I told Canseco I was going to make him hit and run, stuff he was never asked to do. And they're all laughing and stuff. Uh, but then when it got to the point where he, Ron Darling was getting knocked around, and I said to LaRusa, should I think I should go get him. And he said, yeah, you should. And then I thought, wait a minute, not everybody is in on the joke. And Ron Darling, who's a great guy and a longtime friend and colleague, I wasn't 100% sure that he'd be that amused to have me go out there wearing Mike Gallego's uniform because <laughs> he was the smallest guy on the A's, the closest to a fit, that have me go out there. He's trying to make the team. He's getting knocked around. And me as a prank, here, give me the ball. So I said, Tony, I'm out. You go get him. Did you win the game? Did you retire undefeated? No, we lost. <laughs> we lost. I, Canseco missed the steal sign um, at, at one point. Uh, and I, I reamed him out for that. Uh, I, I forget the rest. It's all kind of a blur. Uh, whenever you miss a sign, man, managers get upset. There you go. <laughs> Nothing Perfect changes. example. Well, Bob, right? th this has been an absolute pleasure. We could go on and on. We're going to have to bring you back another episode. Just so many places we want to go, and, and the stories are awesome. But um, listen, it's I, I want to say personally, it's always a treat to be sitting next to you in the booth. Thank it's you, always just a, a first-class experience, and uh, it's something I never take for granted as many times as I'm lucky enough to do that. So thank you for everything. Well, Tom, I've said this before. Uh, you are as attuned to the modern game as anybody in that respect as a reporter, but you're one of the few that's carrying the flame at Sports Illustrated and elsewhere for the kind of stuff that we enjoyed and appreciated as readers and as viewers. You are connected to Frank DeFord. You're connected uh, to the very best who ever did it at Sports Illustrated, and at least a, a few of you guys are still out there doing it that way, the way that I appreciate it. Appreciate that, Jeff. Well done, boys.
Well Joe done. and Bob, I really appreciate that. Yes. And uh, as I said, we'd love to have you back another time. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. See you, Joe. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Well, that was fun, Joe. As I said, I mean, with Bob Costas, man, he's a great storyteller. He's done it all. He's seen it all. Um, and you still hear what I love, the enthusiasm for what he does. It's just so awesome. This is another version of Google. He, he's got everything down, man. He, <laughs> uh, all the facts are at his fingertips. Um, his ability to recreate moments and situations in time are impeccable and as good as it gets. I've always... We've always enjoyed listening to his broadcasts. Uh, he really stands out in the Olympics for me. I was just curious. I thought baseball would be his favorite sport to broadcast, but I can see the basketball side of it too. Uh, just a bright man. And again, just uh, it, it, like I'm so happy he pointed out the component of reading just like you do. Uh, I've been a voracious reader my whole life. More recently, I've been slowed down just based on the speed of information and, and the fact that we get too quick all the time. You need a, a slower pace to sit down and really devour a novel, which I, heck, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I did one every two weeks practically. So I, I really love the idea of promoting reading to kids these days. I don't know if it's going to literally fall on deaf ears, but to get kids to read more, again, not just people that want to become involved in your uh, in the industry, doing what you and Bob do, but just in general terms, uh, reading is so important. I love to see a resurgence in that. That's a great point, and especially your point about sometimes, even though those of us who love to read, you get caught up in the speed of things of, of life now. Everything has sped up. There's no question about it, mm -hmm. and you almost need uh, to force yourself to call a timeout. For me, it's usually what a, a good airplane flight is, is for. It's a great place to read. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you're forced to slow down at that point. So um, that's a great reminder that you almost have to find the time now to slow yourself down because – it's easy to get caught up in the current and the current moves quickly. I find myself, um, I just don't read anymore. Like if I read a newspaper or anything in general, I skim. I'll read a paragraph. If I'm really interested, I slow down and I'll read the whole thing. But if I'm just trying to accumulate more information about anything, I'm a speed reader and I don't like it. I don't like it. I'd love to be able to uh, you know, put the brakes on a little bit, pump them a little bit, slow it down. Uh, because it's so it's a difference maker. Your ability to weave like you do, and 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 with Bob, same way. A lot of it has to do with that. The fact that you guys have read so much, and you have varied interests, and you have a, this wide base, a, a liberal arts base. And again, uh, if there's one thing I try to get across to kids whenever I do have opportunities to speak with them, is to me the the most one of the most important things to do in school would be to read. And also, I like the idea of speech and debate. I've always thought that that would be should be required. That should be required courses within schools is a speech class or part of a class and also debate. Uh, those two things um, I think would be so beneficial. And the last one would be yoga and meditation. I, you know, that's might be a tough sell, but with the way we're medicating children today, give them tools and abilities to possibly avoid that. And these are the things to me that avoid. The, the necessity to have to be eventually medicated in a situation um, to be able to slow things down, breathe, um, really understand what's going on in front of you. So if we could educationally um, provide the tools, 
we're all going to be better off. Like great advice. We're always in such a hurry, and it seems like oh our idols get faster and faster mm-hmm. uh, because the information and technology and entertainment come at us faster and faster. It's important to slow ourselves down. Well, Joe, you always have great words of wisdom coming mm-hmm. out of these podcasts and typically from some great writers uh, mm-hmm. or statesmen. Who do you got on tap today? Well, I, I chose this fella and I've used him before, but the fact that Bob was on and he's such a, a great historian for the game as you are, and and the idea of all the things that are occurring in the game today um, of baseball, I thought this might be appropriate. Uh, baseball people, and that includes myself, are slow to change and accept new ideas. I remember that it took years to persuade them to put uni- uh, numbers on uniforms. That's from Mr. Branch Rickey. So that was like even back then, uh, the, the, the change the, uh, in, in, the, in the game of baseball. And I was just trying to think of like different um, changes that are occurring. And he was talking about numbers. I'm thinking about logos on the uniform, colored bats, spikes, mascots in the dugout. That's one uh, form of change. And the other form of change is runner on second, three better minimum, pitch clock outlawing the shift. I mean, there's, there's different ways to change. And I guess um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, qualify that this – the fact that there are some that to me are easier to accept uh, as IE logos, numbers, colored bats, spikes, mascots, the ones that require more um, time for me to really jump on board with is like I talked about strategy of the game, run around second base in the extra innings, three batter minimum pitch clock outlawing the ship where strategy is impacted and mitigates, uh, you know, the ability to think on your feet during, in the course of a, a baseball game. So these are the things that, that there's examples of change. And Mr. Ricky was talking about numbers on uniforms. So uh, I'm trying to wrap my mind around the whole thing, as I guess what I'm saying to you right now. And uh, I'm trying I'm trying to really um, understand why these other things are so pertinent and important. Like I said, the one to me, the pitch clock, absolutely is the superstar with all of this. The other stuff I'm not so sure about. I'm a little more optimistic because the change I see here, Joe, I think the game is heading in the right direction. Let's see where it takes us. But I watched the Baltimore Orioles play. I watched the Chicago Cubs play. Mm -hmm. I'm now seeing teams play a version of baseball that had disappeared in the last decade in the search for power at the cost of strikeouts, that passive aggressive Mm -hmm you know, walk, strikeout, home run game. And I see athletes defending the field, running the bases, hitting the ball the other way. We're not back to the 1980s quite yet, Joe, but I am seeing teams. It'll be interesting to see what plays out in the postseason. Um, But I, I, I think the groundwork is being set here with a better version of baseball. I've listened. I'm into all of that. And again, but what, what is the, uh, what is the motivating uh, factor behind that uh, change. I think it really comes down to the pitch clock. Well, yeah, it's pitch clock. Yes, but that's okay. If if that's the instigator here. Sure. But I think if you have one of these teams break through and actually win the World Series. Okay. Yeah. We'll see more of it. I, I, I'm all, listen, you know me, I'm all about that. That's, uh, that's uh, exactly what we're looking for in the game. That's, that's why I've been tuning in more this year is exactly what you're talking about. I, and I do tune into the teams that play that style of game. I do. Um, and I, and I, and I have been watching the Cubs more and I like what they're doing a lot, but yeah, the, all this stuff, again, I'm just going back to the quote by Mr. Ricky slow baseball people, slow to embrace change. And I don't want to be, cause I was really at the forefront of a lot of the change 
like 10 or 15 years ago, just with defenses and analytics, et cetera. Uh, but again, I'm still concerned about the, you know, the manager, I guess. And I guess I'm talking about myself, but the fact that um, if you have enough strategy left in the game to be ahead of the, the curve during the course of nine innings, that it might benefit you. But if that, that, that playing field is leveled so much, um, it, it really, again, uh, mitigates the importance of the manager. However, it is all about players. I get that. It is a, it's a player's game. And um, um, I do love the pace, and I think that's the most important part of it. Exciting time of year, as you mentioned, with Mike Sosha. You can feel it in the air. It's coming, Joe. Down the stretch we come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm smelling it. That's right. Hey, great job. We'll, right, we'll see you again next time on The Book of Joe. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.